Hello and welcome to sort of a un- unplanned podcast episode. This was not going to be a podcast episode, but after the conversation I had with these wonderful people, uh, it just felt right. So today, you're going to hear a great conversation about competitive mead making and really just the uh, the actions you take towards being a better mead maker on a pretty high level. Now, this is a long episode, so you're going to get a lot of great conversation, but this was a project hosted or started by Mean Brews, and he kind of brought me in to um, be a part of it. And so I had the great honor of getting to chat with five incredible mead makers that you're going to get to hear a lot about and a lot from. I hope you enjoy this uh, episode. Uh, Again, it's not really a podcast episode, but I'm going to put it in the podcast feed because I think it's relevant. So enjoy the show. So I'm Bill Boyer. (laughs) I'm with North Georgia Malt Monkeys right north of Atlanta. I've been homebrewing since about 2012 uh, and dabbled in meads. And when COVID hit, I uh, didn't produce as much beer. I started making a lot more meads, knowing that it would age better and last longer. And uh, beginning of last year, I had so much mead. I was like, I'm going to start submitting some of the competitions and kind of got hooked on that. Um, And uh, just kept on doing lots of competitions and particularly Matthew Williamson over down here. He and I, uh, created a, a frenemy relationship uh, this uh, last year uh, going head to head and normally getting my butt kicked, but it was very enjoyable experience. And uh, this year I'm uh, still at it, trying making a whole bunch of new friends and other people I'm competing with. I love that. Yeah. I think that's, that is highlighting what the meat uh, world is. It's a community rivalry or not. We're in a community and we make each other better. <laughs> You know, one of the most interesting things about it is as a, for competitions, as a home brewer, you don't go head to head with people as much, but as a mead maker, you seriously, there's only a certain amount of categories, mm-hmm. not, not to mention you're submitting two or three in, into that same thing that you really are uh, going head to head with people. And uh, it's great because we've created friendships out of it, not nemesis is out of it. Right. Absolutely. I love that. Let's jump down to Matthew Crispin. How are you doing? Good. Uh, BJCP National Judge was a mead judge before I was BJCP certified, if that makes any sense. I managed to do that bef- backwards. Uh, <laughs> I did, oh, probably about four years ago, five years ago, and then um, actually worked at a commercial meadery uh, for about a year and a half as general manager um, and consulted there, and most recently uh, helped out with uh, Texas Mead Cup and um, really enjoy making mead as opposed to making beer. And I think judging it is a much more interesting proposition than beer, uh, mostly because of you got melomel and that means a whole lot of things, whereas, you know, a riz is a riz. So um, I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. All right. Um, I'm going to keep going down, kind of going the Brady Bunch style. Let's get to the host of Mean Brews himself, Matthew. Will you introduce yourself to uh, my audience? Yeah, I'm Matthew Harold, and like you said, the host of Mean Brews. That's my YouTube channel, pretty much focusing on beer. Um, but after trying some of Tracy Kufus's mead, I decided that it was something that I wanted to dabble into. So probably the past three years, I've been making mead. And before that, I hated mead. I absolutely just hated mead. And, you know, it's not until you have a really good one that it just changes your perception of what it can be. And Tracy, like I said, Tracy, it was a lime mead and I reluctantly tried it and I loved it. 
Um, so I've been making mead for the past three years. Um, it's been a struggle. It's different than making beer, completely different. You use your sensory, you can, you adjust. Um, and I've, I've, I've become to the point now where I'm, I'm getting good at it and, uh, I'm competing with it and I'm winning things and I'm beating some of these people here with it. So it's been a fun endeavor to learn about mead and watch your channel and watch BC's channel and everybody else and see this community grow of mead makers. And we want to see, we have a, a competitive brewing community and we want to see these people take the next step and go into competing and refining it through blind analysis. And, you know, people like Matthew Crispin here is a national judge and mead a former professional general manager at a meadery, you know, they, they will provide that feedback to help you get better. So take it to the next level. That's what I was hoping to get out of today is help people go to the next level with their meads and really make an excellent product. So. And I think we're going to get, we're going to have some great conversation about that. Um, like you just said, we have some very merited people here on this call. So this is going to be uh, get some pen and paper because you're not going to remember everything that's said today, but you will, if you write it down, because it's going to be a great conversation. All right. We're going to keep going down. Let's talk with Matthew Williamson. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, my first meet experience was at 19 when I made my first meet in college. Um, I hate to reveal my age, but it was in the last century uh, that I, I made my first meet. Um, I've won Cumulatively now, about 148 awards. Um, I've been very lucky. Um, as a meadery and planning, I've been able to do uh, commercial competitions as well. So I, as of yesterday, now have 31 in commercial international competitions. Um, you know, mead is incredible. I think that it's the most underrated drink because, well, it's, I, I agree with Matthew Harold. I think that it's been produced incredibly poorly, particularly, particularly on a commercial level for a very long time. And I think that with a little love and a little time and some tenderness, we can make this process better. We can, we can make mead what it used to be, the drink of the gods. And that's part of the reason why I'm making a transition. I'm actually purchasing property. I'm planning on opening up a meadery in North Carolina. So um, that's almost a done deal as of today. So if you're in the South, that's where I'm going to be. Well, I know a little bit of Tracy's background. If she comes back, you know, I can, she, Tracy was a professional mead maker at Black Ferry Meadery. Um, she's since left that business and started competing again and winning again. Um, you know, she's, she's a part of the Cane Island Ailers as well as me. Um, and she competes across the, the U.S. Just, just like these guys do. And she does very well um, and has won a professional award at the Mazer Cup when she was with Black Ferry. So, um, very successful uh, bead maker as well. All right. So let's go ahead and hop into some questions. Um, you guys are all seasoned veterans of mead competitions and, you know, judging. So uh, I'm excited to kind of pry away at what you guys know. Um, let's start with our, our first question, which is because you are successful in uh, mead competitions, um, what do you think sets your product apart from everyone else's that is also entering said competitions. And uh, maybe we do it this way, um, open up the floor to conversation and then uh, we'll go from there. I have to say it's a hard thing to say because as a, someone who submits to competition, you have no clue what else everyone's been. I don't even know what it tastes like. Um, my success is that I'm, I'm very prolific. I make a lot. 
I make a lot of good stuff and I make a lot of terrible stuff. And I keep on learning every time I make something bad and figure out what did I do wrong with that to make it better. Um, and so I, you know, for some of these competitions, I do submit a decent amount of stuff. A lot of times I started doing it just for feedback, not even winning the awards. Um, and recently I just had one of Matthew Williamson's meets and I'm like, holy crap, no wonder this guy's been kicking my butt. Because it's a lot better than a lot of my stuff. And I actually, there's recently another competition I've been asking, uh, I got all the leftover bottles from. So I'm finally at that point where I'm going to be, what does other people's needs taste like? And it's been a challenge that I've had. I've actually started my own club in the, the Atlanta area because I didn't know what meats taste like. Because I've gone to commercial meaderies and every single one of them, if I go to three different commercial meaderies, the entire base flavor can be completely different from each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that also shows the magic of what meat is, too, because there are so many ways it can be put together and be presented as a beverage. Yeah, I'll, I, I can talk through a little bit. Um, when I try to compete, I always go with bold flavors. You know, I want if I'm going to make a raspberry mead, I want you to know it's raspberry in there without a doubt. Um, the mead that I just wanted, Texas Mead Cup, it was a cinnamon, hakeem pepper mead. And there is no doubt that it's cinnamon and pepper. You know, it just punches you in the face. So I, I try to make those flavors just pop and just come right at you at, at the gate. So it really stands out at the flight. I think that the, the most important thing is process. You have to have a commitment to a process that you know works. And it has to be something that you repeat over and over again. Um, I know that there's a lot of people who will randomly produce something great and then most of the time it's bad it's because you're not paying attention to the process i i use a radically different process um i had a gentleman come through who actually lived very close to the ken tram meadery and um he asked me how it was that i was producing stuff so much better and i go well because i read ken tram's book and then i burned it um so everything has got to be everything has got to be process driven and if you're getting results, you have to know why it is you're getting those results. And that's mm. constantly paying attention to every step that you're doing. And I think that that's why you got to have these, um, these YouTubes are great because you guys are showing people processes and then chance to use them and then they see if they work or if they don't. Um, I am a, I'm a pretty outspoken with what I do. So if you want to edit out anything that I say, cause it's inflammatory, I will, I will, I won't be insulted, but that's, that's just how I am. Um, I, I think that uh, mead has withered and I think that, that it needs to be relooked at. It, it's a, it's not just process, it's passion. You have to have a passion to produce a product that people really want. Um, you can produce a product that will win awards, but it may not necessarily appeal to just the common person. And we have to emerge beyond that. Otherwise, that need will forever be in the shadow and will always be the redheaded stepchild of wine. And that's something I'd like to see changed. And um, I, I think that I, I, Bill, I've had his meat before. He does some magical stuff. Uh, I, I can say that, honestly. I mean, he's, he throws compliments at me. I can say he's done some magical stuff with plastic. And I would never, I would never ferment in plastic, and he does. So I would say never do it, but... Bill can do it and do it damn well. So, yeah. So I don't compete anymore. Um, after I, I won a gold medal with the MCAB and I've won a couple of Mazer Cups, um, and I would say that probably back then, compared to now, 
the reason I won is I had clean fermentations. So my stuff stood out just because there were no off flavors. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, most of the stuff that comes across my tables have been super, super clean. They start off great. So it really comes down to process, recipe, balance. Is it a complete drink, right? Is it something you're going to come back to? Does it make you wow? It's so, you know, spinning everything around uh, to, to sort of modern bean making methods. And I know that a lot of people differ on it, but um, I think that's really changed the game. And it's allowed people to make pretty good meads right out of the gate. My first couple of meads were horrible. Um, it's a wonder I stayed with it, to be quite honest. So, Tracy, uh, what do you think? What sets you apart from um, the competition when you enter? Um, I've been making meads since about 2004. Um, lots of different ways of doing it. I started when I, we had to boil everything. So since then, we don't boil things now. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Bill, I, I do uh, all my stuff pretty much in plastic or stainless steel. Um, I think my biggest success for, for doing, I'm, I'm not afraid to play with stuff. I mean, Matt Harold knows. I, I brought some weird stuff to CIA meat. Um, I'm not afraid to play with it. I'm not afraid to do too sweet or do too dry. Um, thinking about things like what's your favorite soda? What's your favorite candy? What's your favorite ice cream bar? Just start stuff like that and start picking apart kind of backwards engineer it um, and maintaining your balance. Um, I think people are surprised with some of the flavor elements that I put together, not thinking that you should do that. And then when it comes out really well, it's like, well, how do you think that way? And I just sit there literally, I, I just play. I'll play with flavors, I'll play with different honeys, I'll play with different yeasts as well. Um, I just started up some Princess Blossom from Hawaii on the Cosmic Punch, and a lot of people were giving me a hard time about that the other night. I'm like, let me play, let's see what happens with it. It may be a stinker, it may be awesome, but the biggest thing is not being afraid to play with things and, and, and just see what happens. And meticulous, meticulous notes, making sure that you have repeatability. Yeah. Well, that kind of perfectly segues a kind of a, a question towards um, Matthew Crispin. And when we're talking about judging and you have multiple meads in front of your face, what is, um, what's something that normally separates out a mead from others? Obviously, that sounds like a very vague question and kind of bold, but how do you get a judge's attention when you're up against a bunch of other people? Um... So obviously the first thing is uh, if, if, the, if I have a whole flight in front of me, if I have five or six meads in front of me, I can go through them very, very quickly and determine which ones I like and which ones I don't. Um, I think we also have to admit judging is absolutely a subjective thing. It's not objective. So I apologize to everybody that I've given bad score sheets to. Uh, I've tried to be kinder uh, in the last couple of years. Um, so I think that uh, a couple of things. One is I go through and hit uh, how they look first from a process perspective. So anything that looks, you know, you can kind of sort of see if something looks like it might be oxidized. You can make a quick judgment call, then go back and hit aroma. Um, I think we're entering the world of aroma is absolutely critical to winning medals at this point, which in the past, I don't think it's really been that big of a deal to be quite honest. Um, aromas are difficult to capture when you're drinking out of the little tiny ugly plastic cups. Uh, 
Um, so like when we did Texas Mead Cup, we, um, we made a point of using small sample glasses, actual glass tulips so that we could capture the aromas a little bit better. Um, then of course flavor, right? Is it, in my mind, it's almost always is it integrated and does it match what the, the way that the mead was entered? I get very frustrated with uh, an entry that lists six different honeys that are blended together. There's no way I'm going to pick out that honey or have 15 different fruits or fruits plus spice plus nuts plus whatever. Tell me the top three hits, right? Give me, give me what I'm going to experience. And then I can judge it against that because I'm, while I am judging against a guideline, again, those guidelines are wide open. So if it's a melomel, it's whatever it is. If it's a pimate, it's whatever it is. It doesn't matter if it's a Gewürz demeanor or, you know, some other really crazy, deep, dark Brazilian, you know, whatever. So trying to figure those things out, you need to give judges a pathway to sort of solve the problem. You give me a buckwheat pimate, I might have an issue with it. Oh, um, buckwheat piment. <laughs> yeah. So you got a, you got a, you got a nice white grape that's been dragged through the barnyard. Um, you know, how close is that to style? I suppose it could be close, but it still has to be pleasant, has to be compelling, has to be well-crafted. And everybody hates the word balance, but balance is the big challenge, I think, for people to figure out on their own. Um, I know like in, with, uh, with Matt's, uh, chili mead that that one texas mead cup um he says it hit you in the face with flavor which is true but it didn't burn your palate out right that that pepper came through the back end and was a nice cleansing element to to the drink otherwise everything else was very well integrated um, and very well made so you know here's a here's a follow-up question kind of what you're talking about so let's say for somebody who's uh, who has not entered a lot of meat competitions, not super confident in their palate, but they have something and they go, this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, when you enter, let's say whatever sort of mead, if they don't give a very full description of what they're presenting, is that going to be detrimental to their, to them? Or, you know what I mean? If they know, Hey, I made a blueberry and cinnamon mead. If that's all they can say, if they don't have the palate to be able to discern things, but they know it's good, how, where do you follow with that? Um, so I would prefer people uh, give me a generic honey character unless they're going to use a specific varietal and not blend. That's me. Um, so I think in those cases, that's a little bit of advanced entering knowledge that you know most of these guys here already know. right? They, they, they know to enter how they want that to present. There is a hint of, um, you're sort of projecting that onto the judge. I'm expecting that, right? So I'm looking for it. So don't give me something that's got an element to it that's not expected, that's in the description. Um, Use the best possible uh, ingredients you can. Don't use 75 year old buckwheat honey that, you know, it's a solid brick in in the, in the bucket unless you can figure out what to do with it and make it taste good but um you know it's about how long it takes to get through a bucket of buckwheat honey it's about seven years uh, (laughs) i do have a question for you matthew do you have something against buckwheat honey actually no i love buckwheat 
Um, but I've had really bad buckwheat means up until about two years ago. I mean, stuff that you were, you were licking the bottom of a cow's foot kind of bad buckwheat. It was horrible. So I'm I think, still learning the difference between East and West. Those yeah. are the, those Eastern and Western buckwheat. I know there's a difference. And I think a lot of people are blending on buckwheat. So they're maybe putting clover in with it to just sort of take some of the harshness out. Um, I love avocado honey. I love, I mean, there's all kinds of great honeys that are out there. Um, I, I guess a side note is I would try not to chase trends. That gets a little old when you have 13 uh, honeys from Sean out in, in Hawaii that are all the same, right? Yeah, a bunch of trads are all exactly the same pretty much. Are you seeing a bunch of Kavike uh, meads coming through? Or do uh, people I, claim that out or no? no? I don't think too many people claim that except for on session meads, yeah. generally yeah. speaking. And typically, you shouldn't be claiming your yeast if you no, can you help it. I think. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I, yeah, that would be a that would be a weird thing to see on a. Although I've seen put kvike down, I I used kvike on um, a mead that went to Maser Cup and got a third place. So I mean, you can call it out. It's just going to mean that they're going to expect something funky or a little bit different, you know, than like a really clean mead. Um, but I think yeah, you, know, you give them as much hints. Um, as you can, and then you make the best damn mead you possibly can, right? Okay. That's really kind of what it comes down to. And then I also have to just throw out there, on any given day, any mead can score a 50 or it can score a 30. It really is, what's that environment like? What's in my cup that day? How am I feeling? How's the environment around me? That all affects what's going on. Is it a well-run comp or am I being rushed? So mm -hmm. keep those things in mind. Yeah. Well, I ask that because there's a lot of people, especially coming from my world, you know, I attract a lot of beginners to the hobby who I'm sure are interested in competing in competitions um, and, and entering things. But it is daunting when you are, it's, it's daunting enough to take a product and give it to somebody and say, please judge me on a high level and, you know, give me a score. Um, but then the next level of, okay, well, I also have to, uh, give great information, you know, tasting notes or what, what does this judge need to taste? That can be kind of scary because these people, even myself, um, we don't have the best palates. You know, our palates might not pick up that specific character that the judge does. Judge does and uh, it's, it's just a little bit scary, but it's good to know that um, I, I feel like at least the, the vibe I'm getting from you is that most judges nowadays are trying to hopefully be considerate of that truth that we have beginners who are getting started. And when, when so-and-so only writes blueberry and cinnamon and clover honey, they're not getting docked for not giving, you know, the, the exact aromatics or whatever that they, you know, should be perceiving. Yeah. I think, um, and it's, it's a paradigm shift. I think generally from the BJCP's past of, you're sort of trained to find all the flaws and all the faults and you got to write it all down and you got to get a 50 on the exam and you got to, you know, you got to make the certain numbers to make national or master certified when the reality is those points don't cost you anything. Um, we made a point at, Maser, or at uh, uh, Texas Mead Cup this year to start at a 50. Every mead started at 50. If it had flaws, you started taking numbers off, right? You started taking points away. 
Um, and that resulted in, I think, for at least for me, the, the I, Tracy, was it three fifties I gave? Four fifties? It was three fifties. And yeah, I, I've never seen judges gush over meads like they gushed over the stuff that we had at Mead Cup this year. It was a little crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I kind of changed the way I was thinking about things um, in terms of how judgmental do we need to be. And, you know, the, I think the bigger challenge is giving actually good feedback because I don't know your process, right? So my feedback is going to center mostly around recipe, mostly around balance, what worked, what didn't work. And then if there was a clear flaw that I could call out, let's say it's oxidation, you know, I might write a little little tab on using metabisulfite or using better corks or whatever, you know, that, that was relevant to the, to the process. But, you know, for the most part, there's no, there's no reason to be a jackass. Yeah. I, well, I have something, I have something real quick. So, uh, you know, I've, I've just started down this mead path. Um, and I've found a, a big help is to homebrew club, um, taking my meads to the club and letting people try them and say, you know, I, I don't pick up, cinnamon on that blueberry mead i would not say, state that on my entry form you know that's a good way to get other people's palates involved and kind of get some more feedback on how you should enter and what you should enter and it's been very helpful to me to get tracy and others in our club to tell me you know i'm really not tasting that or i am tasting this or you know and it guides me to to, to write the right stuff on the entry form and make sure i'm not going to get dinged for either over intensity or under intensity. Um, that's exactly yeah. it. You don't want to give them information that's not actually there. Like when I enter my stuff the first time I have new things, I'll sit down there and I will judge it like a judge and just like, Hey, I'm approaching it as I don't know who did this and what is this claim to be? And am I getting what it's claiming to be? And if I'm not, then I have to rethink, well, maybe this doesn't belong in this category. Maybe it needs to go into this category. Um, especially for people that are using a lot of um, woods and the different woods. Like I'm a big fan of Amberana right now. That's like my, my big favorite wood to age things on. And I'm doing crazy things like putting the Amberana in whiskeys first and then putting that soaked Amberana into my meats. Now it's become too intense for a, a traditional and you say it's been aged on oak. Well, now it's on Amberana and you're getting these crazy other flavors. Well, now you may be better off putting it in experimental because you're pulling these other flavor elements out there that are not going to be noticed as much in a traditional or it's going to be like, that doesn't belong here. There's something else in here. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Hey, one other thing to throw in, uh, be, being BJCP national, anything or BJCP, anything does not mean you have a good palate. Mm. Trust the people that are around you, um, mm -hmm. develop a rapport with them, develop a, a common lexicon, um, you know, a thesaurus, if you will, of, of flavors, um, so that when you guys sit down and talk, you know, when he says mild, he actually means medium, you know, those kinds of things. Um, it's really important. Yeah. My next question for us, um, continuing down this path, as, as we are all seeking to hopefully be um, successful in competition entering mead makers, um, let's talk about the... Well, I guess here's a better question. What advice would you give to somebody who is who is listening to this and saying, you know what, I I really want to get going with mead competitions, but I don't really know what to do. I'm a little bit nervous. What advice would you give them? I would say the first thing is bottles. Because most people who start getting into mead, mead stuff, and I've seen it in all these mead groups, 
they put all their meat into these wine bottles and cork them and stuff. And the problem is, is that most competitions want a 12 fluid ounce beer bottle. So they either have to then pour their meat into a 12 ounce bottle thing, or they just say, forget it. I'm not going to do competitions. So now it looks beautiful in those wine bottles. It looks crappy in a beer bottle, but if you really want to do competitions, you need to start thinking ahead. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll do some in wine bottles, but let me put a couple in beer bottles so I can go ahead and ship it out. Nice. Pretty much Bills. what I've been doing. Um, I'll start out with my 12-ounce bottles, and then I'll do anywhere from 4 to 12 187s, depending on what competition wants what. And then anything else left over, then I will go ahead and put those into my pretty wine bottles for gifts and whatnot. No. Bill's definitely correct. It's, it's keep it simple and you need to be good with your bottles. And if you are, if you are bottling, regardless of whatever your process is to make sure that those bottles are clean and that your caps are clean and that's it. I mean, you have to realize that 80% to 90% of what you do as a brewer or as a meter or whatever you want to call yourself uh, is cleanliness. Cleanliness is part of your process and it needs to be, it's just so essential because if you even have just a little bit, put it into that bottle and it sits, you're, you're, you're going to have some issues. And I, I think that that's something that as somebody who's just starting needs to, needs to know simple, clean, and your bottles need to be, like you said, 12 ounces. That's the best way to do it. They're also cheapness. And heck, if you like to drink beer, just make sure you get the bottle, the, the ones that don't twist. <laughs> They're dual use, baby. Yeah. I, uh, I think the, the biggest advice I would give is to not give up. More than likely, you're going to enter your first mead and you're going to do horribly with it, <laughs> like I did and like many others did. And you just got to stick with it. It's a learning process. It's a growing process. And take that feedback and take a lot of feedback, enter in multiple competitions and figure out the, what everybody's saying. And say, you know, if your meat is too hot, you know, you're fermenting it too hot, potentially, you know. Figure out how to fix your meat based upon the feedback you're, get, you're getting, and you will get better. Don't be discouraged. We all started very low, um, and, and you will get better at making mead. I, I think I think hits on a good point on that, is that Smith to multiple competitions. One thing about me judging is it is very um, unbiased. There's unbiased conscious on it or unconscious bias on it on mm-hmm. certain regions have certain flavors. They like certain judges, like certain things. And that affects the score. Uh, I know uh, Matthew Williams and I have seen scores where in which we've had 20 points difference on beers that score really well. The next, the next competition on the same weekend scores really bad. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we have judges says too much honey, too much honey flavor to it, and then other people say there's too much fruit flavor to it, and it's the same mean that I said two different competitions. And so, if you believe you, what you have is good, submit it to multiple places to get that best yeah. feedback that you can from it. I I would highly suggest submitting to your local competitions as well because now you can have a conversation with the person that judged it, like face to face. Right. So assuming, assuming it's, it's normal BJCP style judging. Um, I started off submitting to, I'm in the Austin area, Austin Zealots, Texas Carboys. Um, you know, I could sit down and have a conversation with uh, folks like um, Mark Shoppy and Nkasi winner um, and say, Hey, what do you think? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing better? I can sit down with my friends from uh, Meridian Hive and, you know, really have a good chit chat session about what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong and how my flavors are working. 
So um, keep it local. It's cheaper. And then when you're ready, when you got something you think is solid or they're willing to say it's solid, branch it out. Yeah, I think I think Mr. Crispin's very accurate on that. Um, you'll find out that if you, if, depending upon your area, you can find a lot of local brewers that you can bring stuff into, professional brewers who love being able to sit down and chat with you about it, especially if your craft is good. Um, you have, but in the same venue, when, when you go up to somebody and you drop something on them, um, you have to be ready to be blown up too. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's tough. You, you got it. You've got to have an ego to do this. You really do. Um, you can't be a wilting violet and, and succeed at this because you're just going to, you're, you're just going to quit. Um, you take the negative, you take the good, and then you, you try to make a baseline. I think that's what you need to do. A really good way to get some um, insights into the judging as well is if your local homebrew competitions uh, or your local homebrew clubs are doing competitions, go and volunteer to steward and sit in with some of the judges. And that they'll teach you how what they're looking for, or how to judge it, what, how to pick it apart, how to praise it up. And that in turn will help you as you're tasting these, these competition needs and why they're scoring so well or why they're scoring so poorly to go back and look at your own product and, and, and remember what you learned with that and you can apply that to your new brews. I think those are, uh, so everything you guys are pointing to is uh, obviously experience, you know, getting experience in, in trying. And I think that's important. Um, not, not giving up. You guys said something that kind of hit me pretty, pretty good there. I entered my first competition and I, I did not do so hot. This was a couple years ago and I was, it was not a great, great moment in my world, but had I stopped right there and said, well, crap, I didn't do well the first time I should just be done. I would not be where I am now. And it's because of honestly, I'm going to call it a failure that I am actually here now. It's because I took and packed up my bags from my failure and said, let's go, let's go make it better. And that's, that's what everyone has to do. I think that what you said was experience. I think that what you need to do is realize is, is you're talking to me. I've been brewing since I've been 19. So I have like 27 years. Uh, Bill's got a lot of years of experience. I think everyone here has got significant experience spending time doing it. Um, I have just in, in 2021, I brewed 130 batches. Um, I do small batch, so I'm doing six gallons uh, a shot, but I did 130. Um, I had the luxury of having the time to, to crank out quite a bit. So as a home brewer or as a home mazer, if you're only doing one a year, it's going to be hard to perfect your craft. So you have to be willing to devote a lot of time to it, which is why it goes back that you have to have passion. That, that passion is, is a commitment to spending some money and being willing to accept those failures. And sometimes you just do stuff that just needs to get dumped. Um, and that's part of what happens. So, um, you know, it's, you're never going to be a first year person who makes their first needs in their first 12 months. doesn't matter how many books you read. doesn't matter how many people are coaching you. It, it takes a while to develop and you need to, you need to have the constitution to survive that first 12 months. And I've seen a lot of people bloom once they, once they get beyond that. And that's, that's what I would say to all the new people is, is look at this as being, it's a hobby and it's a lot of fun, but the frustration part of it is, is you have to put in the time and you have to be willing to accept the defeats in order to get to where we're at. It's Bill and I, we didn't just jump into this in one year and drop all these medals and, and produce successful 
needs and Harold and, and I'm sure Tracy are in the same boat. I don't know them personally, but I know that they've got, it took years. And my first meet was horrific. I mean, it was acetone bath bad. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not touched by the gods. How many of us have dumped a batch? <laughs> I've dumped a commercial batch, 1,400 gallons. Woof. That's brutal. It sucked. All right, I want to transition because you guys are all, we're talking about getting better, being a better mead maker, especially, you know, competing. Um, the word balance was thrown out earlier. And I think the word balance is probably one of the most important things for any mead maker to actually understand when it comes to not just enjoying your brew, but like obviously going further in competitions. So um, what, uh, what are some ways that you attempt to, when, when you're building your batch from the start, let's kind of go in reverse. When you're starting a new batch, how do you attempt to balance before the batch begins? Obviously there are things you can do post, you know, acid adjustments, sweetness in later stages. How about before it starts? What do you do? Water. It all starts with water. Um, that is what, you know, the vast majority of what goes into your, into your meat is. Um, I think that you need to understand, control your variables. Water is the first one. If you're going to be uh, terroir and you're just going to use the same kind of water every time or whether you're going to build your water, uh, you have to make up that decision right off the bat. I think that anybody who's successful is starts off with that right there. Yeah, you got to have your water sources constant as you're building up your your house flavors, as you will. Um, if you are using well water and then you switch over to spring water and then you go to the store and you buy a different type of spring water, that's going to mess with your recipes. So you want to keep consistent on your your water, whether you're as a, yeah, like like Matthew Williamson said putting in, you know, your own minerals and salts and adjustments to get what you want or purchasing spring water. I would say bench trialing uh, flavors um, is something that I did a lot of uh, tasting honey and teas, tasting fruits and teas, trying to come up with, um, I, so like my signature was always having something that contrasted so, I, for instance, I would do a black meat and I'd put apricot in it. And so it would stand out a little bit. And then trying to find the right note, right? What's that right level of intensity of that right note that I'm bringing in? Or if I'm using pepper, how hot does it need to be? How can I manage that? And then really sitting out a strategy to make that happen, right? All the way through from the beginning, through a fermentation, secondary, oak additions, tannins, everything. Um, and that takes some time to figure out. It's not, you know, straight out of the gate. But I think it actually be interesting to get Matthew and um, um, what's, I uh, can't, can't think of your name, man. Uh, get your guys' take on balance in a traditional because I'll, I'll thumb wrestle just about every judge over this one. What's balance in a traditional mean to you guys? <laughs> I honestly don't know how to answer. Let Matthew Williamson answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You know, um, I guess balance. I think that in a traditional, what I'm looking for, I, it, this might be exact opposite of whatever you think. So, I mean, that's we can agree to disagree, but 
I want something that balances the heat of the alcohol with just the base flavor of the honey. Um, my biggest compliment is when I'm driving up and I've got an 8.3 or an 8.5. I don't do heavies. Bill is Bill's excellent at heavies versus what I do. Um, that I get a con my biggest compliment I get from my drinkers are is when they tell me I can't even taste the alcohol in here, but they're not overwhelmed by the honey. Like they're not sickened by just how overly sweet that it is. It's a drink. It's, it, it just blows their mind. It's, I, I, they get, I get told it's the best alcohol I've ever had. Um, to me, that's, that's what balance achieves. It's, it's when you can create a flavor that doesn't punch you in the face, so to speak. Um, and, that's that's the closest I can get to it. I'm not a sommelier or a person with a, a great palate either. My my friends, the people who have supported me here and helping me get a meadery open, um, who come in and taste, and there's a couple hundred of them, um, they're 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 the heroes here because they're the ones with the palate that have had that have kind of guided me the the way that I am and the, and the, the success that I've had. Uh, I'd like to talk about balance. You, you specifically asked, um, what do you try to do beforehand? I, most of my flavor balances, particularly on spice or fruit, I try to do in the tail end. But my sweetness balance, um, I, I, I went to a lecture by Michael Fairbrother at the Blue Bonnet Brew Off a few years ago. And Michael said something that really struck me. And it was, he always plays with the alcohol tolerance of the yeast he uses. And he overshoots to try to get the residual sweetness left in the mead. And the, the analogy he gave, he said, it's like, for any mead, it's like, you can back sweeten with honey. But when you put the honey in before, it's like having a, a meatloaf with the ketchup on beforehand versus putting it in ketchup afterwards. You know, it's gone through the cooking process. It tastes different. It might not be better, but it tastes different. So I always try to hit my sweetness level there by looking at the alcohol tolerance of the yeast I'm using and keeping the residual sweetness after I hit that uh, tolerance. And then I'll go affect the other flavors where um, I see there needs more or less intensity of, of something. Um, I'll affect it with other, other means by adding more of it or, you know, watering it down even some. Um, but that's, that's how I approach uh, front end balance in my recipes. And one of the things, throwing a caution though, real quick, is this myth about raw honey flavor in a mead. Um, I've sat at NHC tables and every honey or every every traditional that came across the table, another judge that's got raw honey character, and he marked it down. Um, that blows my mind. It shouldn't happen. So sorry, Bill. Go ahead. No, and I've seen that happen. I'm just, I mean, it's freaking mead. It should have a little bit of sweetness raw honey, but then you get it. I was like, what's up with that? I've seen that on my judge sheets, and I've just. You know, I, I take it sometimes with a grain of salt. I read what it has. I, I take it. And that's why I do submit to a lot of competitions. Because if three guys say the same thing from three different areas, maybe they're onto something. But one of the things I do when I, I'm, uh, you know, fermenting and stuff is I have a lot of plastic. I use big mouth bubblers. And I have a spigot on them. And I drink and taste it throughout the whole fermentation process. So I can, I, I can tell what the yeast health is from that. I can also, you know, just see how it's going. Is it getting hot? Is it not? And I, and then as it's done and I stabilize, I'm drinking it. I'm slowly adding things to get to the balance that I feel is good. Because at the end of the day, balance is what tastes good. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I, I, I had a mead. We talk about, you know, hammer with so much honey in, uh, on top of it and then let the yeast do its job. I got, that's how I ended up with a mead at 22% ABV once. And 
amazingly yeah. enough, I still had a back sweetener with some extra honey, and it's one metal and stuff, but it still amazes me that a 22% sack traditional can, can win a couple medals because that is a lot of alcohol. Yeah, that is um, – I, I was going to say – the yeast tolerance thing I know is, is uh, sketchy sometimes because as we know, as we've learned over time, yeast, when given the proper nutrition and, and everything they need can sometimes say, hey, uh, I'm going to go a little further today. I'm feeling a little little bit wild. So um, it, it, that becomes a challenge. And I honestly like, I like trying to do the same thing, push past the yeast tolerance and then have residual sweetness because it's uh, honestly easier than, than back sweetening post-fermentation you're not worried about oxygenation it's just there you just literally like all right go ahead and clear up <laughs> let's drink kind of situation um but there are challenges to face with that right there uh now i also i kind of switch over still in the recipe slash balancing realm um when you are submitting these meads to competition are most of the meads you have submitted uh, have they been through multiple iterations or are they, you know, did you, did you get a home run or uh, what kind of situations are we looking at here? All, well, of the can... <laughs> All of the above. Some have been, can, been going for like years of the same recipe going over and over again, improving over time. And other ones were like, let's try this and see what happens. And it came out what well, we thought were good. Friends tried it. Everybody tried it. Like, let's throw it in a competition, see what it does. And sometimes you're happily surprised, and sometimes you're like, yeah, I kind of knew it would do that. Um, but again, like, you know, getting the opinions of your homebrew people, of your friends, and expecting them to be brutally honest, um, telling them, it's like, you know, you can't hurt my feelings with this, I need to know the truth. That's the biggest thing, knowing what you're entering, um, knowing how you, you produce this, uh, what did you put into it, is it too much apple this time when you do the sizer? Well, what apples did you use with your sizer? Maybe you need to go to a different style of cider, or maybe you need to get some different types of apples and try the different varieties of the fruit. That's the biggest thing. Like this year, I was not able to get my hands on Honeycrisp cider. So I have a different one. So my Yuletide is going to be different this year. But that's okay, because we're going to do a small test batch and see if we actually like the traditional recipe that I've been doing with my Yuletide over the past few years, or if I have to change it up after the test batch comes out. Uh, I can speak to um, the Fafnir's Blood, which is a, uh, a dragon fruit that I just made that took uh, silver at the 11th Annual uh, New York International. Uh, that was a one-time, first, first go-round. But... The reason why I can do that, and, and I wouldn't recommend it for your, your beginners, is, is process, 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 process. Once you have a process that you have codified, that you know will result in a certain result, then you can play with the recipes and, and tone it in. But if you can't control your variables, if you can't get the basic blocks down, the only thing you're going to do is frustrate yourself, and you're never going to be able to recreate the success you have if you get it. So learn the basics. And, and that, that starts with water. That starts understanding yeast tolerances. Um, don't throw out if – you, if you have a kind of yeast and you, and you like it, you, you, it's good to play with it. It's good to learn from it. It's, you have to learn it. You have to learn the nutrition. You have to treat it a little bit like an animal and take good care of it. There, there's a lot of things that you need to do that lock in your process. And once you lock in your process, once you know how to swing, you're going to hit a lot of home runs. 
Tracy's not scared of anything. That's <laughs> yeah. Matt, Matthew aren't scared. You guys of are like, oh, you know what? I've done it all. No, yeah, no, no. Like, no. Scared. <laughs> so my big thing right now is playing with chocolate. Um, everybody knows I'm doing the chocolate thing. White chocolate, dark chocolates. Um, I know I got a target on my back from Bill Boyer now for winning uh, Sweetheart's Revenge two years in a row with my white chocolate strawberry. <laughs> I just had the white chocolate to my strawberry mead tonight. So let's see how that works. <laughs> well, we'll do a bottle swap. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just trying to do different things with the cacao nibs and, you know, different vanillas and trying to, you know, get different things um, out of the, the nibs that kind of shake hands with the different fruits that I'm playing with. Um, so I've got a couple of things that I'm not quite ready to reveal because um, I don't know if they're actually going to be good or not. <laughs> but um, my fellow club members will get to taste them later this year and, and tell me whether they're good or not. But that's my big thing right now is trying to, trying to master the chocolate and fruit along with the honey, without overpowering any one of those elements. Yeah, I make big, bold meads. Um, so my nemesis is the dry meads, you know, the subtle <laughs> ones. Um, I don't make a lot of them, and I don't really like them. So I struggle with it. Um, I also, potentially a future nemesis is I want to try to make a, a, a mead Solera sherry. So I'm, I'm also... Um, working, I, I have a lot of sour beers that I make and I did a wild capture this winter in my front yard, finally got one strain that will ferment and I have made some meads with it and it's very unique, but great. Um, you, so, um, trying to, trying to dial that in and find a wild strain that produces a good mead. It produces horrible beer. I'll tell you that, but the meat was fantastic. Um, so, so I've got a bunch of different fronts where I'm trying to, to perfect. You know, I tinker with everything. Uh, like Matthew Williamson said, I made, I made 99 batches in 2017. So if you want to get better, you got to brew. I think Jamil said, if you're not brewing once a week, you're not going to get better. You know, so to, to get better at anything, you got to practice. And to, to practice, you got to make more mead. So I, I, I think that if I had a goal or a need that I would want to master is I want to produce something that breaks the bonds that breaks us out of the shadow. I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I hear lots of stuff about this need and that need and sublimity and complexity. I want something that's going to step us up and out and make us popular. I want to see needs on the shelves at stores. I want to see people drinking. That's what I want to master. And in doing, the only way to do that is to find stuff that people like. Um, and sometimes that means breaking out of the rut. And that's the thing that I want to do more than anything else is not get so narrow focused on one little thing. I just want to make sure that, that I'm producing something that appeals popularly. And if I can master that, I think I'd be very happy. Yeah. Well, I think uh, kind of uh, someone said dry traditionals. Those are my, my world. I'm trying to uh, not necessarily master. I just want to make one good dry traditional. That's like, if I could do that, then I will be, I, I can die content because it is so freaking hard to make a good dry traditional mead. You're just, you're, is, 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 let me ask you a question. Is dry traditional mead, does it taste good? Yeah. I, I, I personally do. If you do it well, I've had some good dry ones. I have. And so it's not like I don't, it's not like I dislike them. It is that um, obviously you're, you're leaning on execution uh, completely, essentially honey quality, 
water, of course, you know, um, in your yeast, you know, you really got to detail what yeast is going to work well. And there's a lot of uh, research that goes into that in, in yeah. playing around and, and it's just, a, I, it's a scary thing. Oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not arguing or trying to poke a hole in your, your capabilities, but there may just be certain styles that will never really appeal. I mean, you, you, I, I have people who come through that are wine drinkers and there's a class of venophile that like Pinot Noir and Pinot Grigio and it has to be dry and regretful and full of oak. I don't want to build a meat that's dry and regretful and full of oak. I, if, I wanted to, if I wanted to make a wine, I'd make a wine. I want meat to be something different. So I, I think that when I hear people say, I just want to make a, uh, a great dry traditional what does that mean? Do we, in, in, if that means producing this very French wine style dry, I, I wish you luck on it, but I'm not entirely sure that, that beyond a, f a small section of people that it's going to be something that people are going to be dry, you know, falling over themselves about. I, and and that's, that's, that's why I was asking you a question. I mean, is it really that good? Is, is a dry, I mean, I gotta be honest with you, a, a dry Pinot Grigio, I mean, I, it's, but I, I, you know, I, I'll disagree on to that certain point. You know, the whole idea of this is a have fun and drink some meat. I mean, that's the no, first. Yeah. That's the first rule for all of us. Everyone, and I can tell from my judges that everyone has different. I have a guy who's in my uh, my little meat club who loves sweet stuff. Every time I give him a dry stuff, he's like, eh, it's whatever. But you know, there's other people who like that dry meat. I know another. I know another friend of mine who loves the dry stuff. So as for me, as a hobbyist, I'm not. I'm not trying to sell my stuff. I just want to make things and experiment and learn. So do I want to try to do dry ones? Yes. And actually one of, one of the experiments I've done is again, what is the yeast? You know, is it a Kvike yeast? Is it a, you know, champagne yeast? Is it, you know, all these different kinds of yeast out there and how do you make a good dry yeast? Cause I've had good dry yeast uh, or good dry, good dry mead, not good dry yeast, but good dry uh, meads. Um, and so, yeah, it, I don't want to judge anyone on what they make. Um, and one of the things I like to believe is that I make lots of different flavor profiles. I've gone to meaderies where every single one of the meads I have, I drank there, tastes identical with just a different fruit in it. Yeah. That's it. And you know I what? think that's, that's isn't that Mr. Crispin's job to do the judging? Uh, no, it's everybody's job, right? But uh, being a former commercial mead maker, I got to say, you got a challenge ahead of you because. Um, my experience and then the experience of a lot of people is that people expect certain things. It's not necessarily what they want. It's what they expect and they expect sweetness. And I'll agree with that because when I had my place, we'd have people walk in and they were wine stops and they're like, Oh, we only drink dry. We only drink dry. I had a couple of dry things available, set them up with the dries and they're like, Oh, what? I really, I really don't really like that and then you give them the sweets and guess what they left with in their bags they left with the sweet yeah. and not the dry yeah. yeah yeah and i think i think when you start talking about it that's when the honey varietal really needs to shine right mm -hmm. it's got to be a specific honey varietal some of these are really intense when they're super dry alcohol again going back to balance and in, in a traditional too much alcohol just kills it too much tannin kills it too little tannin kills it too much acid you know you got to strike the right pose with the ester profile, the honey profile, um, you know, everything that's there to make a, a great mead to start with. And then hopefully you're going to find the audience that's going to want it. Um, but, you know, the overarching, I guess, generic statement from 
you know, the majority of the good, what I would consider to be the good or great uh, commercial meteries, you know, in the United States is that people generally expect mead to be sweet. And if you don't meet an expectation commercially, then you have a big hurdle to get over, you know, to, to get, get something good in their mouth. Um, Oh God. It's a shame. It really is. It's, it's, it's really tough. You've got a hard challenge in front of you. Fortunately, you're talented. So, you know, you got that going for you. Um, and, you know, you've got the will to go, go through it and keep pushing. And that, I think that's going to be, you know, the critical piece. Because the day you dump 1,400 gallons of meat on the floor, that's bad. It make you question your life. That's yeah. a lot of money. And you have to find, find a friend that's a distiller in that case. <laughs> uh, well, in this case, it wouldn't have been any good for a distillery. Either. Oh, really? Oh, man. Too much wow. sulfite. So, but yeah, it just takes one mistake and you ruin a batch at scale. It's, it's hard. That is a really, really tough, difficult lesson. Mm. At home meat maker level, if I screw a batch up, I can dump five, five gallons. I'll dump it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah, but it's cool. It does. I, I'm coming from the perspective of, you know, I, I got friends over at my house and, I want to give them something to try, you know, they want to try mead. I'm hoping that at the end of the day, if I got somebody who's a, a dry person who wants to come in and try, they like dry stuff. I can get that for them. I want somebody who's, you know, they like sweet stuff. Great. I want someone, they like spice, you know, whatever. My hope is to, again, air quotes around it, master the, uh, a, a style and or recipes well enough to get people enticed to make and or buy mead. And mm -hmm. what, what aggravates me as a, um, someone who lives in the YouTube sphere and watching, um, watching people make it or teach people how to make it, we, the people who are, are giving the meat out are, you are literally selling it, even if it's free. You're selling the idea of mead to somebody. And if you present a crappy mead to somebody, more than likely, unless they are just very blunt, they will not say anything negative. They're probably going to go, Oh, thank you. Oh, here's like so good. You know, they'll just kind of choke it down, walk away. And then they'll be left with this thought that mead is this alcohol that, you know, tastes like whatever you gave them. And, and again, that's uh, paint thinner. <laughs> yeah. yep. That's where your homebrew club comes in really, really helpful because you, know, you basically, I, I need to know, what does this taste like to you? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it other? Um, give it to a beer person. Give it to a wine person. You know, give it to a hothead. And you're going to get different results from different people depending on what they normally like to drink. But it's still going to give you a good um, feel for what you need to do to improve something. And if you know you have something going on weird with one of your batches and you bring it for people to say, 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 there's something weird going on with this. What do you detect? You know, and then just and discuss it. That's critical. Honesty yeah. is critical when you're evaluating for, mm -hmm. for a friend. You know, I'm, I, I like to say I'm not married to any of my batches. You know, I've made so many. I don't care. Hit me with it if you hate it. You know, I need to know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to get better if everybody lies to me. So um, when, you're in that, when you're in that scenario and somebody wants you to evaluate uh, uh, someone's mead, you need to be honest. So. Okay, so I have... Uh, I got kind of two, maybe three wrap-up questions that I think will be um, quickish, but the first two are a bit co controversial. So first one, I want to I want to ask you, what are some things that you've seen in the mead community um, promoted that are possibly disastrous and or hurtful to 
mead makers around the globe. I wish oh, I, I watched this YouTube it. video of this guy putting a freaking mead in a dryer. I'll tell you, <laughs> yeah. break it in a dryer. <laughs> Gosh dang, those people. Hide the dryer. Hide the dryer. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it. Raisin, raisins is nutrient. Yeah. You know, that, that to me is just a, you know, not something that you should be uh, hanging your hat on. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few of them that supposedly are doing scientific proof that science is wrong. Um, and I know I'd call them out, but I would be a jackass for doing so. Um, when their science is solid on providing nutrients, rehydrating your yeast uh, with GoFirm, those kinds of things, when those things are solid and you come out and you say, everybody else is wrong and that the actual science is wrong, then um, I turn you off. You get off my list pretty quickly. Yeah. There, there, I see a lot of that on the, on the, the Facebook forums and I'm not a really big commenter on things. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a lurker when it looks, I'm like, I, if I say something, I'm going to start a flame war. People are going to hate me. I'm just, you do what you want, dude. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll go enter and I'll collect metals and I'll help people make their stuff better and help them collect metals. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the misinformation that, and, and people like, Oh, I don't want to put chemicals in my mead. It's like, right. oh, we're all chemicals. So, you know, <laughs> I'm making stuff that is going to be you because I'm, you know, I'm, incre- I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better at my craft every time I make a batch because I am willing to keep learning and accept what other people are finding breakthroughs with and using them to my advantage. And condoms should not be earlocks. <laughs> or or coffee okay, cups yeah. on top of the fermenter. You know? uh-huh. BC, sorry. Matthew takes a really scientific approach, and I think that that – you know, in terms of process, what he said earlier about a process where you make a minor change and a minor tweak as you go along, then you you have a pretty solid baseline of what you're doing. When somebody steps in and says something that's completely wrong and, it, it, and somebody goes off and follows that as gospel because it fits their paradigm, that's a huge problem. And it's a problem in the commercial space as well. It's not just a problem with home, home mean makers. I, would, I, I agree. I, th- I think that... Uh... There's, there's a lot of bad information out there and, and stepping into the Twitter sphere or into the social media, you're going to get a flame war no matter what you say. But I would say this more than anything else. If you're going to do a fruit mead, don't put whole fruit in your carboy or in your fermenter. I'm tired of seeing it. It drives me nuts every time I see it. Um, there's this yeehaw attitude about dumping whole fruit into the, into the, into your must, into your whist or, and, it doesn't work. It, and when you say whole fruit, are you talking about, let's say I'm making an apple mead and I'm not, I'm using real apples <laughs> alongside juice. If, I, if I'm cutting it up into quarters, eighths, whatever, is that whole fruit or? Yeah, I would I would even, I would even go as far as that. You're mm-hmm. steeping at that point. You're not, you're not getting the most advantage out of it. Look, I see this a lot with blueberries, raspberries, berries in general. It drives me nuts. I don't, I don't give away a lot of secrets as to what I do, but there's, there was a comment I made that I got yelled at for, and it ended up being the last day I was in a forum. As I said, there's a reason why the press was invented 5,000 years ago. And it's not because dumping whole fruit into beer and wine or any, or into meat is a good idea. The, the efficiency and what you want for taste and your sugars are from crushing it. So at minimum, you need to be doing a puree. Uh, I, I love, I just, 
I see these guys and they're new and they get excited and somebody has told them to take whole strawberries or whole blueberries, freeze them, even freezing, and then dump them in there. And you see their carboys got six to eight inches of, of fruit. It's jammed up. The carbon dioxide can't get out. The yeast aren't healthy. Who knows what was on those fruit when they dumped it in there if they didn't pasteurize it. It's, it's, it's just a giant mess. And it's, it's something that these guys get excited about. Or I, I had one guy I saw who was literally taking a masher and mashing an open ton, you know, at this, that's great. If you want to do wild fermentations and you're, you're totally cool with, with getting off flavors from your own personal yeast they're dropping in, that's sweet. Hey, you're cool. But if that's not a standard practice and that's why you're not going to get the same need every time when you're open fermenting and, and literally sticking a, an unsanitary object into your in your ferment that's that is incredibly bad information it's incredibly bad process but i see it every time i look at any time i see people doing meads especially in these weird um facebook areas it's it's like they they're almost proud of just how completely barbarically bad they do things Mm -hmm. i would i I would disagree in some respect only because i if you use pectic enzyme you know i made a blueberry I used that, re- that recipe earlier, blueberry cinnamon mm-hmm. um, recipe. And I just, all I did was uh, cold macerate, pectic enzyme. And, you know, at the end, after I kind of smashed them up a little bit and put them in. And then at the end, I did what I could to get my juice from them. No juicer. I, it was a pretty dang good mead. And I think that um, when, when we put absolutes on, um, you have to have a juicer. You got to go spend the $150 to get a three pound. Cause I've looked at those juicers, um, their press, excuse me. And, um, uh, I think that's where we scare off people. Sometimes I think it's a great point to go further to, if you want to really take that recipe to the next level and do it on an, and let's say the level two is, you know, starting sure. with that recipe. If you want to take it to that level three, level four, getting that press is going to help you expand that. But um, the truth is, and and I'm coming from a perspective of a lot of the people watching this are, are going to be so new to the hobby spending that extra $200 on a press might be scary. And that's, that's, it's hard to, I will never push someone and say, don't make my recipe unless you have a press because that, that just chases people off. No, you I'm going to second that. You're um, right, but you're not going to create consistency. You're yeah. never going to have consistency. If you want a great, if you want to make great meat, that's what you have to do. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to dispel anybody's, you know, wanting I to. I think if you want to be, if you want to have a higher likelihood of making great mead, I think you can still make great mead with with fruit. I know a lot of meaderies do it, professionals, and they make great stuff. Um, but I'm with you. Um, I use juice a lot. I have a steam juicer. I've been making a lot of steam juiced uh, beads. It gives you a more jammy flavor. Um, and I like that um, in some of my, my bigger stuff. Um, and juice, you get better yield. You don't, you have fewer losses, less trube and uh, what do you call it in the wine world? Not true, but lease. Uh, thank you. And yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you, you don't have to deal with that. You get, you get. It's more economical at the end of the day, you know. Well, I would, I'd, I'd put it over to the two, the, the two people who have done commercial, and and I have some commercial experience as well. But, um, it, would you have, would you recommend dumping whole fruit into yours? I mean, I, I, I actually have a brewer here in town that came to me, and after he had just got done making it, he goes, "Oh, I just froze them and dumped them in." 
Tell, tell him to go to Belgium. And look, and he's a professional, so I guess maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. It, it depends on your fruit. I mean, down here, I mean, I had, I was gifted elderberries at one point, and I didn't have a press. Um, they were frozen, and I had a one barrel fermenter open. I'm like, well, let's just do this. They were all clean. They were picked clean. There was no stems. I'm like, let's just dump them in. Let's just do it. I mean, I'd never done elderberries before. I didn't have a press, and there was no way I was running. You know, uh, what was it, 60 pounds of elderberries in my little Jacqueline juicer. So I dumped them in the fermenter and they came out fantastic. If it turns into mush, if it turns into mush in the fermenter, I'm going to use juice 99% of the time. If if it's like cherries, cherries retain their form. The skin will keep it together. I love to put cherries straight in there. You get Uh, a different flavor though, Matt. I mean, I think that, I think what Matthew's saying is, uh, you know, coming from... Uh, from where I come from, we used IQF fruits that were very, very consistent. We used fruit presses when we were using real fruit. Um, we used a lot of concentrates. Uh, we used very high quality concentrates, and I don't mean flavored syrups. We used actual fruit concentrates, um, so things that were highly filtered. You get a different result. I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, but sort of back to to Tracy's comment about apples. I get more apple flavor out of skins than I get out of apples. So I will often do, you know, apple, uh, some sort of crazy apple cider from some kind of, you know, super nice varietal, you know, rare one, and then use off the shelf apple skins to give it some apple flavor and aroma. Um, I think how you skin it, again, back to the way Matthew's approaching it is, uh, you need it to be repeatable if you're going to go into the commercial space. If you're doing it at home, I don't think it's really quite as important, but you do have to recognize that you're going to get a different flavor on skins um, than on something that's pureed, than on something that's juiced. Your tannin levels, your acid levels are all going to vary. And every the more you process the product, the less natural flavor that you will get out of that fruit. And if you want to see your people get successful to, to do the meads, to that are yeah. going to make the metals. Oh, absolutely. They have it's to like, have a process that's consistent. Yeah. Bill, what do you, do you use juice, whole fruit? What, what are you using, Bill? I do all different types of things. I mean, it all depends on what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, uh, I've used purees. The one problem you have with purees, and I'll sometimes take blueberries, and I'll throw them in my Ninja blender and sit them overnight with some pectic enzyme and toss it in there. And I'll put it in a bag, try to get as much of that stuff out and hand squeeze it, talking about adding some bad possibility of infection. <laughs> I've done it, but I, I haven't had it happen. But my biggest fear is I got this bag of all the stuff, and I'm squeezing all the juice back into it because that's the good stuff. And I'm like, dear Lord, please do not infect this mead. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I've done it. Like, for example, earlier I was drinking a raisin mead, which I pretty much put my raisins in a blender with some water and then put the pectic enzyme, let it sit in there and threw it into a mesh bag inside of the stuff, make sure it kind of sank down somewhat. And um, beautiful. Um, again, you will, the skins get more tannins and stuff, kind of go with Crystal, what Kristen was saying, is that there are different flavor profiles that can be accomplished from it. And as I said, there's so many different ways to do things with me. There's no right, okay, there's definitely some wrong things you can do. Um, but, but, you know, there's just different ways to do it and it can accomplish different things. And to now as a competitive brewer, guess what? Matthew Williamson has a great process that works down and 
Josh Darner, the guy kicked my butt so many times, I'm going to listen to a lot of what he tells me. I am too. But, <laughs> but you know, and I've been, I've been looking at pricing out myself a press because I don't have one. Um, but, you know, for as someone who's getting into it, you know, giant chunks of strawberries not cut up in any form is useless. I mean, we all can agree to that. And strawberries as a whole is one of the most pesticide-filled fruits possible. You better wash the crap out of that thing. Um, yeah, that's why I use them. It's the pesticide, baby. You're trying to kill the judges, huh? Yeah, but, and then also my wife too, because that's her favorite. Yeah. And I, 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 don't know, I mean, honestly, when I explain to some people what he did with some of the stuff with it, they're like, "No way! He he had to do something different um, with the processes and stuff." And I'm just like, "No, this is kind of the rough idea of my understanding of his process." And dear lord, that strawberry mead was like—it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, what, what, what I can what I can say is this: is you don't have to spend two hundred dollars. You you can find a decent little wood press for like sixty. And yeah, I'm, I have one of those. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a mess. It's a pain in the butt to do. But the more work you put into this, the better result you're going to be. And I'm sorry, but the most people that are just throwing the whole fruit in aren't because it's just the easiest thing to do. To make good mead requires a lot of work. That's in mm-hmm. like. You said, Matthew, Mr. Harold, you said, oh, the reason why you started with this is because you heard it was so easy. Well, you started doing it and you found out it wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, everyone thinks brewing is easy when they're on the outside. You know, people think making beer is easy too. And it, you know, yeah, hey, true. we'll just open up a meat. We'll just open up a brewery. We'll make a million bucks. It doesn't always work that way. It's a lot of work. But it's the struggle. It's the work that makes it worth doing because, you, you, you put all this time and effort into it. You sweat a little bit. Maybe you cut yourself, you put a little blood in there. And hey, at the end of the day, when you finally get this product that everyone gushes over, it's worth doing. Yeah. Again. Quick comment, two things. Was, everyone do it. Two things. Number one, never call him Mr. Harold. It's just. <laughs> it's Mr. Mean Bruce. It's gross. <laughs> it's disgusting. Sorry. I'm sorry. Also, um, there was an incident where somebody came on to, I believe it was the modern mead makers and bragged that he put blood in actual mead. Um, that is not legal, <laughs> no. not recommended. And I will personally hunt you down. If you try to slay that in front of me uh, on, a, yeah. on a mead table. So Competition. Yeah. Just, you know, just, just saying, if you want to put it, that's up to you. Use it personally. Uh, meat products in general should never <laughs> I meant that I meant that more recipe. more figuratively than literally. But, uh, I understand. Yeah. yeah, I'm just I don't want anybody to go. Oh well. Now well, put that. a little blood in Gold medal. Now, now you've now you've given me a challenge. You're gonna get a chicken meat <laughs> next. Oh God. Are you familiar with the scrumpin cider where they put like a pork chop in the cider? Uh, I, you know, I've heard of uh, them using a boot back in like World War II times to kick off fermentation, but I've never heard of that. There was a, there, there was a recipe I saw for an ale that required a, a head of a rooster. They call it cockhead ale. That's in the Papazian. A, a dead head of a yeah. rooster floating in your beer. No, thank you. No. I mean, I suppose. Can't be well, much. You guys do use eggs to determine your ABV and if the meat's done, right? <laughs> cracking them and, you know. Well, you might actually if you find them, right? They used egg whites to find back in the day yeah they did so I, okay i got one more um i kind of want to hit controversial because i think it'll be fun for people so oh, I, I have a video coming out about semantics in mead making and something that i see just blowing up in the the youtube world all the time and facebook groups people talking about 
well, I'm not going to give you my topics because I'm curious if you have the same ones as me. What are some semantics or things that you've heard debated so heavily, aggressively in social media and non-social media? You know, what are some of those semantic topics that you've heard of and mean making? Okay, I got one. So uh-huh. this is even through competitions. Your sweet meat has not fully attenuated. <laughs> So people seem to think that if you have a sweet mead that you haven't fully attenuated all of your sugars, well, it's a sweet mead. <laughs> it's mm. not supposed to be fully attenuated. Um, that, that's a big one that I see a lot. So everybody has this idea that er- everything has to be dry. Everything has to be gone all the way dry, and then you back to sweeten it to get where you want it. But so, it is technically true because you have residual sugar. Crazy. Right, but but <laughs> when you you faulted that on it on a, on, a, on a score sheet, if I if I got that comment, I would think it would be out of balance, right? Mm-hmm. That the sweetness is not playing against the other elements of it. They, they said it was balanced. Um, I get that they say it's balanced, but they said That's that it needs to be drier. But do, oh, they, they, they said it needs to be drier because the idea of a judge is they but should identify what's in it and what's yeah. there. I mean. They're yeah. supposed to say, hey, this is what I'm detecting in this. Mm-hmm. And then overall impression, they can say whatever they want, and I ignore it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like you had a beer judge drinking a meat. Oh, or a wine judge. We've had some wine judges kind of sneak in, and they te- they seem to think that all, all everything needs to be dry. No, you're, you're right, and that's the exact opposite. I think that I, I agree with you completely on that. Does it yeah. doesn't have to be. That's one of the things that I would say that would be controversial is, is – uh, is this idea that you have to push you have to push your yeasts in order to control them i don't think that that's that's the case um you know i i think that that you can you can not do it you don't have to back sweet to make a delicious sweet mead yes. and i don't uh that's I don't I've, been, I've been i've been called a liar said hey you you can't do that and yeah you can you, you can you can do it but i have never back sweetened the mead yeah, yeah. I was neither have i you, you know probably should Matt. I'm just saying. You know the tolerances of your yeast, and that's how you, you do your I think I'm doing all right. <laughs> I'm trying to think of one. Any was... any other semantics y'all can think of? I, I don't want to spoil mine yet until y'all run out of. Uh... I get I get a lot of twists with judges over the term esters, mm-hmm. and what esters really are versus what honey flavor really is right so you know from a purist perspective i think of honey flavor first and then the ester is what the yeast contribute to it and we typically talk about super clean yeast and we typically you know like kvike we talk about as kind of being estery and messy and it throws these different kinds of, of flavors and i find personally i really have a difficult time sussing out what's different unless it's a, a honey that i'm extremely familiar with like Tupelo or uh, Orange Blossom or Buckwheat or, you know, certain variations of, of wildflower. Oh, Wajio is a popular one here in Texas. That throws these crazy phenols, but there's these really cool floral esters that come along when you use the right yeast. But if you use a super clean yeast, you're basically licking a desert floor. It's not pleasant. So, you know, judges get really confused over the, di- the difference between those things. Mm-hmm. And we overuse the word esters, honestly. I, I did want to ask, what's, what's your favorite yeast to use? I'll say my, mine is 71, 71B. I use it in a lot of my uh, meads, most of them actually. I'm D47. Bill? 
I'm constantly playing around with it. I have liked doing Lutra right now, pseudo logging. I've done some good dry meads with that. Doing a, a 68 degrees Lutra, and you make it just a clean, dry mead with that. It works well. Um, I use a lot of the different Red Star ones. So um, I guess it's what I can't think of what they're calling it now. Premier Classic for more mm. of my fruit meads. If I want to go more of a more like traditional, I might do the Cota de Blanc. But um, I just recently bought a whole bunch of 10 cents yeasts that were past expiration date from more beer. And I just bought a whole bunch of them. And like, I'm just going to try out this different yeast. And I forget what brand it was, one I've never even heard of. But I'm like, yeah, I'll do a couple experiments. Now, I do a lot of my experiments doing ciders because it's a lot cheaper than honey. Uh, so I'll do a lot more of my, my yeast experiments on the cider side and then transfer that over to on the meter on the meat side. What's your favorite cider yeast? Uh, the Lutra has been good. And then again, um, Saf Cider AB is solid. Um, Interesting. Either other Matthews you want to share? <laughs> I try hard to match yeast to what I expect from a honey profile. Yeah, It's not easy. And uh, I think for me, it's been a lot of one gallon test batches and I change my mind all the time. So it just really kind of depends. Uh, 71B is reliable. It's what I won all of my awards with. Um, but I feel like it's overused mostly because Ken Tram popularized it and, and then uh, you kind of got picked up by everybody. Mm-hmm. Fairbrother uses it in everything. Fairbrother so. uses it in everything. It just shows up everywhere. And when you're particularly in trads, if it's a, if it's an orange blossom, I can tell you pretty quickly if it's 71B, it just, it's so. Yeah, I like the 71B in my darker fruit beans, like my black currant and my dark pinnuts. I do like the 71B. I heard you said gherkin. I heard <laughs> gherkin, and I'm like, gherkin meat is not a thing. My internet sucks. <laughs> D- D47 works it. in this. Great idea. Gherkin. Okay, I'm doing a meat bead, and Bill's doing a gherkin bead. <laughs> ne- te- next Texas bead cup, you get to judge those, Matthew. Oh, God, help us. <laughs> Special category. There, there's a reason why I call him Wild Bill, and that's because he's doesn't he throws a lot of weird stuff in there but um i would say as far as yeast profiles i'm always pretty much looking for a, extreme neutrality because i'm i want to bring out the flavors in the mead themselves the honey the fruits so i i'm i, I have a tendency to do extreme neutrality um i just made a very estuary um mead but it's a uh, strawberry banana so it should should have it should It'll the esters are actually physically banana so yeah. no I, I i think that uh I think that what I would say to anybody who's starting in this is, is to just find the good base one. Um, yeah. It, it, there's, there's nothing worse than trying to build recipes and you're flipping through your yeasts. You need to, you need to learn one right off the bat. I, I know it sounds crazy, but you, you can't play every instrument in the orchestra. You need to find one to start with. You how, need how, did you, uh, how did you juice the banana? Well, <laughs> Um, actually, uh, in, in this one scenario, a lot of times I do all my pressing. In this case, I did get the banana nectar from a uh, from a group. Wow! Which I I wasn't. I definitely wasn't very keen on it, but we actually tasted it. We took it out and we tasted it. And we went, holy crap! I That's don't know cool. how they made it, but it's 100% all natural. So I was. It, it went into the mead, and it's 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 incredible. I, I wish I could submit it, and I can't. Did you <laughs> I mean, I could do it to a commercial one, but I wish I could. I'd love to kick Bill's butt with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let it kick my butt manually. 
<laughs> but, did, but did you use any skins? So one of the weird things that I found with studying country wines, um, I've got like six or seven different watermelon wine recipes and none of them use flush. They all use rind. Everything is wow. clean and rind. And you get a really, really beautiful watermelon flavor and you use water out of it or the flesh and you get this weird phenolic crap. It's the same with, same with citrus too, right? You know? oh, uh, I, I would say watermelon has got to be the hardest one to work with because if you, you're, you're just talking raw watermelon, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to heat it up, to try to pasteurize it, it turns into, for me, I get cucumber. <laughs> it's what it yeah, turns, no, it's watermelon true. just wham, it's cucumber and it's like, and I'm not kidding. I made a mead for someone that wanted to dry watermelon and that's what I did. And it, it was the worst thing I'd ever made like recently, like two years. And I handed him a bottle of it. He's like, Oh my God, best thing ever. And I'm, Oh, I was, he's like, he's like, this is just so refreshing. I'm like, Hey, some people like cucumber in their water. Yeah. Okay. I think we got time for one more question. We, yeah. uh, yeah, let's get a, let's get one quick, um, wrap up because we got about two and a half minutes left for the zoom call. If you got one quick advice for anybody who's, who's wanting to enter or start mead making, want to get better. What's your one piece of advice? Let's start with Matthew up in the corner by me, which is which one there's three. Uh, <laughs> mean brews. <laughs> Sorry. Um, too many Matthews <laughs> staggered, staggered nutrient. It, okay. it, it has made my meads competition ready in, in just a few months instead of years yeah you know learn learn how to use staggered nutrient how to rehydrate with go firm temper temper your starter with your must and it will kick off like that and it will be clean um so i've i've had a lot of success with staggered yeast nutrient tracy um (laughs) find a honey varietal that you really really love and keep working with it and master that particular honey variety before you move on to others. Mm. Matthew Williamson, what you got? Keep it simple. Just start simple. And when you master the simple, then you can do everything else. You got to have a base. You got to have a process. Matthew Crispin, what you got? Drink as much meat as you possibly can, whether it's good <laughs> or bad. Um, yeah. And, and be critical about it. Um, so if it's commercial, be critical about it. If it's, if it's homemade, be critical, not in front of somebody. Don't, don't, you know, don't piss them off. Don't, don't be critical of them to their face, but you know, be generous, but in your mind, think what's wrong with this, what's right with this. What do I want to replicate? And Mr. Boyer. Well, uh, a lot of the other answers are already been taken. So, um, you know, just really enjoy it. When you submit to competitions, don't get down if you don't win a medal every single time. Um, you know, there are some competitions out there, particularly part of the mead maker circuit that I got skunked on and I, I do very well in a lot of competitions. And this year, my goal is half these competitions is my Rocky Balboa montage to try to get better so I can win some, like one day I want to get a major cup. So, um, you know, just, you know, slowly learn from what you're doing. Don't get upset if you don't win and just keep on trying. All right, I want to give a huge shout out to Mean Brews for uh, not just his YouTube channel, which you should go and check out, of course, but also for um, allowing me to be a part of this this wonderful project and this video series. And I want to thank everyone who's been a part of it because it's been an absolute blast. As somebody who not only participates in mead competitions, as someone who hosts them, um, 
but as just a Mead community member, your information is is beyond valuable to us as we uh, strive to be better Mead bankers, not just in the competitive sphere, which is where we kind of talked about a lot today, but also in the home sphere. When you're sharing it with your friends, kind of hearkening back to the truth that what you share is probably the only experience your Mead, your friends are going to have with Mead, um, unless they, of course, go outside of their means. But Mead is so small, but it can be big, given that we all share it well, and we give out the good stuff, hopefully. So go and make some good Mead. Again, thank you to all my, my wonderful um, judges and friends here who have taken their time and their evening to uh, participate in this and uh, it's been a blast. So thank you guys. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks. Thanks.